Everybody loves a good story, and I don't think you can find a better story than the one we're in right now in the Old Testament in the book of Esther. We're just going to pick up where Dave left off last week. I'd encourage you, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that sermon, to go listen to it. It'll make the whole story make more sense, but also because it's just a really good and challenging message. So it probably won't surprise you that in the book of Esther, the main character is Esther, right? And I had asked the, the uh, Crossing Kids graphic artist if we could use some of her images that she's been using to connect the dots with kids and connect the face with the description of the character. And so uh, Esther is a Jewish girl who is living in a Persian world. And through a very unlikely turn of events, she becomes the queen of Persia. But, and this is really important, Nobody in the king's court knows that she is Jewish. Well, every story, every good story needs a villain. And that role in our story is played by Haman. Haman is King Xerxes' right-hand man. He's the second command of the vast Persian empire. And Haman hates this guy. His name is Mordecai. And the reason Haman hates Mordecai is because Mordecai refuses to bow down in public to Haman. He refuses to give him the honor that Haman thinks that he deserves. Well, Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and in order to punish Mordecai, he talks the king into making an edict that all the Jews in the Persian Empire would be killed, would be absolutely wiped out. Mordecai finds out about this plot and he goes to Queen Esther and he says, Esther, you need to go to King Xerxes and use your position to plead for mercy on behalf of your people. And that's a problem because you see Persian law said that no one could approach the king without being summoned. And if they did, the king could have mercy on them, but likely what would happen is that they would be instantly killed. And so, and so Esther says, you know, I'd love to do that for you, Mordecai, but I can't because the king hasn't summoned me for quite a while. And, and Mordecai is saying, but, but you got to, Esther. You got to go plead for mercy. I can't, Mordecai. Finally, finally, Esther's kind of like, okay, you know what? Here's the deal. You call all the Jews in the empire to fast and pray. And I'm going to fast and pray. And then I'll go in before the king. And if I perish, I perish. It's her way of kind of saying, I'll trust God and just see what he does. So that's where we pick up the story in Esther 5, verse 2. When he, the king, saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. All right, so the first hurdle has been crossed. The king didn't have her killed. She's alive. But now what's she going to do? Well, while she was praying, she came up with an idea. It just kind of reminds us that when we pray before God, that that might be some of the times in our life where we're thinking the most clearly. And, and, And so while she's praying, she has this plan that pops into her mind. And remember, she's the queen of this Persian empire trying to unite Uh, all these different nationalities. And the king doesn't know that she's Jewish. And she's afraid that if he finds out, he will know not only did she not tell him, but that that the king will think that her loyalties are divided, that she's more committed to the Jewish people than she is the Persian empire. So how is she going to tell the king to please don't kill all the Jews without this secret being found out? All right, verse three. 
The king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Well, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. So this, this uh, a phrase, up to half my kingdom, it's just a figure of speech. It's, it's his way of saying, Esther, I want to do for you whatever you want. Tell me what it is that you want. So you would think that what she would do is say, oh, king, I, I'm begging you to have mercy on my people and to not kill them. But she doesn't. Instead, kind of oddly, she asks him to come to a banquet with Haman that she had prepared for him. But him is singular, just one him. But she's invited two hymns, Xerxes and Haman. So who is this banquet for? Who is this banquet for? I mean, if, the, if, if she's hosting this banquet for King Xerxes, her husband, why is Haman invited? And if the hymn refers to Haman, well, the king's starting to wonder, is there something going on maybe between Esther and Haman is his second in command somehow taking advantage of that position to, to develop a relationship, an inappropriate relationship with his queen? Well, they go to the banquet. And, and when they're at the banquet, he, uh, Xerxes says, Okay, Esther, tell me what you want. Up to half my kingdom, it's all yours. And let's see how she responds. Verse 7. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Another banquet? It's like, come on, woman, get to the point, right? I mean, why not just ask him immediately to revoke the order to kill all the Jews? But this time she's invited Haman and the king to a banquet she prepared for them. Do you see that the plural has replaced the singular? And the king's becoming more and more suspicious. Is there something going on between Haman and Esther? Haman, he is so proud, so happy that he's been invited to this meal that he's oblivious to all this that's going on. Verse 9. Haman went out that day, so he left the banquet, happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. I mean, Haman is absolutely obsessed with Mordecai. The story keeps going. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the nobles and officials. So see what he's doing? I mean, he's, he's got together his wife and his friends to tell him how important he is, right? I mean, he, he's boasting about his wealth and his many, his many sons to his wife. I mean, doesn't she know how many sons he has? Wouldn't she know probably better than anybody else? So this is just kind of a weird situation here. Hey, honey, I want you to know that your husband, uh, me, is pretty cool and has lots of money, and you should feel lucky to be married to me. It's just so bizarre. I mean, what kind of person does this? Verse 12. And that's not all. I mean, he's got more he wants to say. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Haman 
is on top of the world, but he can't be satisfied because there's one thing he doesn't have. Mordecai won't bow down to him. Haman has everything he could want. He's the second in command in this vast Persian empire. He's already been bragging about how wealthy he is, how powerful he is, how influential he is. But he can't be happy because there's still one more thing that he wants and he can't have it. He, he, he needs that one thing to be happy. He needs to live in that one place. He needs, to, he, he, he needs to have this Mordecai pay respect to him. Until he can get that, it's going to be miserable. It reminds us of the gospel math that we've been talking about as we go through Esther. You can have everything in the world, but if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. You can have uh, everything in the world. Maybe your health is good right now and your family's doing well and you've got a good job. Maybe in some sense, if anybody looked at you, they'd say, gosh, you've got a lot of blessings. Gosh, things are going well for you. And as much as you admit that, you don't have the peace and you don't have the joy. You don't have the satisfaction and the meaning and purpose you think you should have, that you want to have. Well, that's because you can have everything. But if you don't have the most important thing, Jesus, then what you really have is nothing. So Haman's wife, Zeresh, she has a plan to help Haman. Verse 14. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning, that's important, to have Mordecai impaled on it. So here's what they would do in the Persian Empire. Their form of kind of a, 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 a capital punishment is they would take a tree and cut it and make a really sharp point on the end of it and then stick you on that tree and you would be dead. So uh, Zeresh says, ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself, right? Have the guy killed and then go have fun. This suggestion delighted Haman, so he had the pole set up. Now remember, when is he supposed to go do this, according to his wife? In the morning. Hmm. Verse 1 of chapter 6. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. So you see what's happening here is, is that the king can't sleep. And, and so he just happens to ask for this uh, uh, book to be brought to him to see if it'll help put him to sleep. And he reads about Mordecai and how one time in the past he had saved the king. And he goes, did we ever do anything to say thank you to Mordecai for this? And they go, no, we never did anything for him. And about that time, the king hears something in the courtyard. He's like, who's here? Verse four. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. So did you notice that Haman didn't wait until the morning? I mean, what is he doing? He's going to the king in the middle of the night, I guess thinking he's gonna wake the king up to ask if he can kill Mordecai? I mean, he is obsessing over this. Have you ever been there where you feel like there's one thing you need to be happy and you just can't let it go? You've got this ache inside and you just think, well, if I can just get that. And then you become fixated on it. That's where Mordecai is. 
He's got one more thing he thinks will make him happy. Of course, we know it won't, just like all the other things he has hasn't made him happy yet. But he's kind of lost his common sense. So we have both Haman and the king who can't sleep, right? I mean, Haman can't sleep because he's obsessed with Mordecai, and the king can't sleep because he keeps wondering whether Haman and Queen Esther have something going behind his back, and why Esther keeps inviting Haman to these crazy banquets. Verse 6, when Haman entered the court, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? I mean, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as Haman is, yeah? I mean, this guy is so full of himself. And yet, we've got a little Haman inside of us, don't we? We've got a little voice inside of us that tells us that we're important, that we're the one who should be honored, that we're the one who should do well, that we're the one who should have success. Reminds me of that story I told you not too long ago about the a CEO and his wife who are standing in line in the DMV, you know, the long lines that move slowly that seem to never get anywhere. And standing in that line, the CEO of this big company kind of mumbles under his breath, don't these people know how, who I am? Don't they know who I am? Don't they know how busy I am? And, and his wife looked over and goes, yeah, you're a plumber's son who got lucky. That's who you are. But we all have that voice in our head. Don't they know who I am? Don't they know how important I am? Don't they know how busy I am? I can't, I can't take on that project at work. Don't they know who I am? I can't stay late and solve that problem. Don't they know who I am? Don't they know who I am? I, I, why do they keep asking me to serve at church? I mean, I, I'm busy. I got stuff to do. Let some of the other people who have nothing to do and aren't that important do all that other stuff. So the king asks Haman, oh, what, what should I do to honor someone and, and Haman thinks the king wants to honor him. So he goes, okay, here's the deal, king. You should go all out. Like get your royal robe and put it on him and put him on your royal horse and then have somebody really important lead him through the street saying the king honors this man on this horse, right? That's what you should do. Okay, verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you've uh, recommended. Now, now this is the point in the story when you're reading it that you start laughing because you realize that while Haman has been plotting to kill Mordecai, the king has been plotting about how to honor Mordecai. And right here, if you could imagine Haman walking Mordecai through the streets saying, this is the man king honors. What you're watching is the pride comes before the fall. That, that Haman is having to endure the humiliation that comes with honoring the man that he hates, that won't bow down in honor to him. And all of this happens. Haman ends up in this situation because of a series of events that were outside of his control. Here's Haman. He's the man with all the power. He's the, the, the man now who is powerless all because a series of circumstances that he can't control started when the king happened to not be able to sleep one night. And, and then he just happened to call for a book and they happened to give him the book of his reign, the Chronicles, and he happened to open it up to the place where it talked about how Mordecai saved his life. And about that time, Haman happened to walk into the court. 
This guy with all the power is rendered powerless. Haman is rendered powerless by a series of events that he can't control. And what Esther, what the book of Esther is telling us is that God is at work in all the happenstances in our life. What the book of Esther is telling us is that all the little moments of our life that seem insignificant are really moments that God is working in for our good, to teach us and lead us and do good for us. And that's good for us to hear because here's the deal. There are no miracles in the book of Esther. I mean, God's not even mentioned in the entire book. And a lot of times I don't feel like there's any miracles in my life either. God doesn't just work through miracles. God also works through the mundane moments of our life. And that's good news for you and me because most of our life, the vast majority of our years here are filled with mundane moments. But we can have the confidence that God is at work in those small things that maybe no one else notices. Well, by the time the second banquet comes around, uh, Haman doesn't have as much power, right? He's endured the public humiliation of of leading his enemy uh, through the city, talking about how great his enemy is. And, And now the king is also a little bit suspicious there might be something going on between Haman and Esther. And then remember Esther's challenge. She's got to somehow plead for the mercy for her people, the Jewish people, without the king thinking that her loyalties lie more with the Jewish people than they do with him and the Persian Empire. Okay, so what's she going to do? Goes back into the second banquet. Here are King Xerxes and Haman, and King Xerxes does his thing. Esther, tell me what you want of the half of my kingdom. It's all yours. I think probably right then she says a short prayer under her breath. And then verse three, Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? I mean, you can hear the anger building in his voice. The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. See, Esther revealed who her people were. She asked the king for mercy to spare her people's life. But she tells him that while she's telling him that someone is trying to kill her. What she's hoping is that that news is so shocking to the king that he doesn't really hear that she's Jewish, that, that she's hiding her nationality in this news that someone is trying to kill her. And she's hoping the king will be so distracted that he won't think about any possibility that she might be, have divided loyalties. So she's asking the Persian king to protect her life. And what Persian king doesn't want to rise to the challenge to save his queen? But is it accurate? I mean, was her life really in jeopardy? Was someone really trying to kill her? Not exactly. I mean, Haman didn't even know that she was Jewish, right? So so what's she doing here? I mean, the claim she's made is a little too much. But of course, there's a little bit more going on. What she's done is she's turned the tables on Haman, right? She said, look, he's the one who's coming after the Persian queen. He's the one that can't get past my Jewish identity. He's the one who is the racist. 
King Xerxes thought that maybe Haman was trying to take his wife away through adultery, but uh, Esther says, no, he's trying to take me away through murder. And so building his rage to defend his queen, the, the, the king has someone to focus on, and it's Haman. Verse 9. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to the height of 50 cubits stands behind Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. So the very instrument of death that Haman wanted to use Mordecai has now come back, and he's the one who's stuck on the pole. He's the one who's died on it. Do you see the reversal? The way things get turned around and upside down. Remember in chapter one, Queen Vashti was on top of the world. She was the queen of the Persian empire, but then she became the one who was banished. Her, her fortunes were reversed. Or Mordecai, he was the one who was going to be impaled on this sharp stick and killed. But in a reversal of fortune, his enemy is walking him through the streets, dressed in the royal robes, sitting on the royal horse, being honored by the king. There's Haman. He, he is the one who had all the power and all the wealth and, and, and all the good things going for him, second in command of the whole Persian empire. And now here he is, dead, hanging on a pole that he set up to kill his enemy. And then there's Esther, she started out as an orphan, remember? She was a, a lowly nobody in an empire that did not respect her people. In fact, they wanted to kill all her people, and now she is the queen of that empire. At the beginning of the story, she was being manipulated by Xerxes and Mordecai and everyone else, but now she is the one who has all the power. Her fortunes have been reversed. And I think in all of this reversal, what we're supposed to see is the greatest reversal of all. That Jesus was rich but became poor for us. That the, Jesus is the king that was crucified. That Jesus left his throne to become a servant. See, Jesus reversed this world's values. Jesus reversed this world's fortunes and Jesus says, out of his death comes life. And so Jesus has taught us to live our life here in a way that has kingdom values because he will reverse what happens here on earth. So we think that the greatest is the one who has the most stuff and the most power, but Jesus says, no, if you want to become great, you must be a servant. And Jesus says that the last will be first and the first will be last. That those who try to gain this world will lose their life, but those who lose their life in this world will gain it to eternal life. Jesus reverses the fortunes. Jesus reverses the values of this world. Will you live by kingdom values in a world that doesn't honor them? It looks like Jesus is going to lose. Today, if you look around, it looks like Jesus is on the retreat and Jesus' values are on the retreat and Jesus' people are on the retreat. But Jesus says that in eternity, he is the one who wins. 
there is a, a friend of ours that we had come and speak to our staff team, a friend of, of, of all of our pastors who, who we asked to come and talk last week to our staff team about some choices that he had made in his life. He has a great family here. Wife and kids have attended the crossing for a really long time. And, and we asked him to tell a story about how uh, he gave to a project that kind of, you might say, helped save the church. Here's the story behind it, is that back at the beginning, before any of this stuff was built, before there was any land, we met in a little school. And then we, we graduated finally to where we were kind of overflowing Rockbridge High School. And the school told us, that the administration told us that we needed to get out by a certain date, which was fine and fair. The problem was that we didn't have any money to build the building that we needed. We didn't have anything at all. And we just asked people, hey, do you want to throw in some money to see if we can keep this thing going? Otherwise, we'll just shut up shop. And this family gave a significant gift toward that project, like a gift that you knew that they were having to make a sacrifice in order to be able to give that amount. And so we just went and asked them and just said, hey, you know, what, what are you thinking? Why did you give this much? Are you sure you want to? Can you really afford it type of a conversation? And he said, yeah, we can afford it. We had been saving up for something that we really wanted. But you know what we decided we want more? We want this church to keep going more than we want something that will sit in our driveway and need to be waxed. And so they made a sacrifice so that you'd have a place to sit. They made a sacrifice so that the church could continue its ministry. And I think the way God sees it is that everybody who comes in to these doors. Everybody who comes to a ministry that, that, that we're able to have here and finds Jesus, who, who, who finds peace, whose marriage is put back together, who has hope, who recovers from an addiction. Everybody who comes and, and finds a church and a community and grows in their faith. I think God looks at everyone who has made sacrifices and he smiles. A smile comes across God's face because they, those people knew, that friend knew, that if you let go of things here, God will honor it in eternity. But if you hold on to things here, then your reward is only here. See, Jesus turns the world upside down because he is the one who reversed it all. He left his throne to be a servant. He is the king who was crucified. And all of that is, is, is because he is the true Esther. Remember, she risked her life. Jesus gave his life. Haman was impaled upon the pole at the king's orders. Jesus was hung on a cross voluntarily. Out of his death comes life. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat. And he took some wine and poured it into a cup and said, this is my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. In a few moments, I'm going to ask you to come forward and take communion uh, with us. You just come when you're ready. Come down front, take a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine that's in our hand or the juice that's on the stool. There's a gluten-free option at all the stations around the auditorium as, as well. When you come, what we're doing is remembering the death of Christ. We're remembering how he turned death upside down, how he took its sting out, how he forgave us our sins and invited us into a relationship with him. 
If you want to give toward people's physical and financial needs, that's something we do every time we share in communion. There are offering boxes marked Mercy Fund as you leave, and you can give there to that cause to help people in our church and in our community. While people who are going to serve communion get in place, would the rest of us just bow our head and pray for a moment? Jesus, we thank you that you are the crucified king, that you became poor for our sake, that you became a servant, that you gave your life so that we might find ours. I pray, Father, that you would give us the grace we need to walk according to kingdom values in a world that sometimes feels like it's against those. Jesus, our hope is in you. You are everything to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. People of God, please come to the table of the Lord Jesus.